Nicolas Cage is probably one of our generation's definitive actors. It's Andy Gillard here. Hope everyone is doing well out there. How are we doing, guys? Matt Guy here. Hope everyone's having a good evening so far. Good morning, good afternoon, good night. Hello. So, gentlemen, we've uh, we've had to watch Snake Eyes and Eight Millimeter for this week. <laughs> like the reason so, I paired these two films is I I have a, a, a recollection of them being two big crazy cage films. They didn't quite play it like that on rewatch, <laughs> but I haven't seen these for probably about twenty years. But there we are. But oh, to be fair, when when you put the list up, I would have said the same thing that these two would have been nice together. Mm. And it seems I was thinking of a completely different film altogether with one of them. <laughs> yeah, same. Yeah. So I suppose the link is there. The final two films of the nineties, I think, for Cage. We've got ninety eight, which is Snake Eyes, and then ninety nine for 8mm. So let's get straight into Snake Eyes then. Here, this isn't a beach town anymore, it's a sewer. But it's my sewer, Jiminy, and I love it. I kick around about six square blocks, everybody knows me, I got the whole town wired. Someday if I manage to get my face on TV a few times, maybe I'll run for mayor or something, but that's as far as I want to go. Because I was made for this sewer, baby, and I am the king! Curtain up. The film starts with exposition about a storm coming on the night of the big fight. We meet Nicolas Cage straight away, over the top, loud, obnoxious, wearing a sleazy lawyer's outfit. He's got the brown leather jacket, shirt with the biggest collar I've ever seen, <laughs> and slicked back hair. So like, I think this is why I paired these films. This is why I thought Crazy Cage, because that is my overriding memory of Cage in this film is that garish get-up right at the beginning. Cage is trying to play some bets, seemingly underhand, black market kind of bets. Then he chases a man down. Cage looks like he's going to be an absolute schmuck, but then he pulls out a cop's badge. He catches up and then beats the guy, and then he basically mugs him. So we found out that, actually, is Cage going to be a bit of a dirty cop in this? Is, is that where we're going with it? Yeah, I, it, went, it went from... He did such a good like job of being a sleaze. I automatically assumed it was a fake badge. Yeah, I just assumed. A... Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I thought he was some kind of some kind of dodgy promoter. Yeah, like I, I never for a second thought he was actually going to be a cop. That becomes a little bit later. With that gold cell phone as well, like <laughs> to add to the sleaze. Oh, oh no! Come on, I I had a gold phone. You 90s. had that suit, I reckon, Stu. <laughs> if, if, Still if I was old, well, it's a life goal now. No, I'd um, remember the, the BT. It's how long has it gone? Two minutes, and it's already gone off for one. <laughs> um, it was like the um, the the BT Cellnet ones were like that, like about seven, eight inches long, and there were you know, a big U U on the middle, and there was a tiny, tiny screen, like a little, but enough to get one line of text on, and that uh, there was a, a a phone shop in town for obviously. Wolverhampton people opposite TJ Hughes, the bottom by the calf. Mm. Um, there was one there, and they took because it won a Nokia, they had to take the whole case off. So they took the whole case off and sprayed it shiny gold. 
Oh my god! Uh, is it <laughs> wow? A pimp phone, and I, I've still got it. It's obviously knackered and don't work, but it was the pimp phone for then for the next year and a half. I think if any story encapsulates you at all more, <laughs> it is that one. Seriously, <laughs> mate. So Nicolas Cage, he's a bad cop doing shady deals and shady actions, screaming and shouting like we're in store for some of the purest crazy Cage we may ever get. Cage takes his seat ringside at the big fight. He sits next to a straight-laced admiral friend of his, played by Lieutenant Dan. <laughs> Cage and Lieutenant Dan go way back. Dan is protecting the Secretary of State of some such area, who knows, uh, he's an important man with an important job. Nicholas Cage looks like a coke fiend. But why does no one say anything to him either? They're either, either scared of him or everyone knows him. But if you see someone acting like that, then surely they're drawing attention to themselves. Especially being front row, sat next to a secretary of state and a man who is dressed like a, a lieutenant or an admiral, I think he's in this. He, he sticks yeah. out like a sore thumb, really, doesn't he? Whilst trying to protect the secretary, Lieutenant Dan gets drawn away from his seat, believing an attractive redhead is suspicious. Even though there is absolutely no reason to believe that, she's a hot woman sat on the front row of a boxing match. Like, she couldn't have been more in the right place at the right time <laughs> if they had have paid her to be there for crying out loud. Whilst he's away, Lieutenant Dan is replacing his seat by a blonde-haired lady, played by Carla Gugino. Whilst Danny's away, the champion boxer gets knocked out and the defence secretary is fatally wounded and the blonde lady is grazed with a bullet. She runs away, but not before dropping her wigs and glasses, revealing herself to have dark hair. Hair plays a really big role in the, the opening of this this film, I think. So we've got, we've got Cage with his, his slick-backed, scummy lawyer look. We've got the short back and sides of uh, Lieutenant Dan. We've got the blonde, yeah. We've got the blonde lady becomes a dark-haired lady, and we've got the redhead. Almost everything seems to be playing out around hairs to start out with. I don't quite understand why, but that seems to be the only signifier of who and what people are in this. It's a bit weird. Yeah, for a film about boxing as well, which has got mm. famously no hair at all. <laughs> well, I had um, I had like notes on here about it was like a bloody episode. Of, it was like a playing the game Cluedo. So you had the woman in an all red dress, you had Cage in all green, you had the Admiral, you had the girl, the blonde girl with the white dress. It's just, um, it was a bit strange, really. I loved how frenetic it all was during those scenes, though. Like, when everything was going on, I thought it was fantastically well done. Yeah, I think up until this point, like th this is the highlight of the film for me. The, the opening sequence of this film, as you say, it's frenetic. It draws you in. There's so much bright moving colours and everything and it's it's really really well done and that's probably the end of the praise i'm going to give this film <laughs> of course it yeah um it's it goes downhill quite fast it doesn't go downhill yet according to my notes but um it's, it's not, not long before off. not it's not far off before it does i think at this point in time though well, the dialogue is so fast-paced and it's quite interesting. And you're you piecing together what's going on and they, they feed you little bits every now and then. And I think they do a really good job of it as well. Um, but I think we're getting into a bit of a running theme with Nick Cage films where once the cat's out of the bag, um, the films really drop off a cliff incredibly quickly. 
Mm. Once we know yeah. the twist or we know. So we took like Grand Isle, for example. Um, once once we knew what the actual the situation was with that couple in Grand Isle, that film. Died on its ass. Yeah, it did. Yeah. It really did. Yeah. Uh, so after discovering the uh, assassination, Lieutenant Dan shoots and kills the assassin. And then he shuts down the whole building, making sure that nobody escapes. Cage takes over the investigation to make sure that Dan's mistake is not discovered. There is absolutely no way on earth that the guy who was sat front and centre at, at this murder would be allowed to be conducting the investigation. Yeah, dress, <laughs> it just wouldn't dress, happen, would it? <laughs> dressed like that and all the press and media just look up to him and say, oh yeah, okay, you, you go ahead. Yeah. But even, I mean, the, the, do they even say what rank, when the guy w- walks up the stairs to him and he says he's in charge, do they even say what rank he was? I, I think all he says is he a, yeah, I think he's a, a homicide detective, if I remember correctly. But but that was literally everything. It was just, okay, so we just have to bow down to you now. Like, never mind the fact that you're wearing a shirt with fucking bananas on. <laughs> <laughs> we'll just buy straight into it, mate, no problems. Now the detective work starts. Cage figures out that the champ threw the fight. The champ says that he was told to throw the fight by some redhead in order to settle some debts that he had. But he did not know he was there to facilitate the assassination. Carla Gugino goes to the bathroom to clean up and get changed. Was this just an excuse to show Gugino in just her bra? Because we didn't really need to see it. She was out in the open of the bathroom, so surely there would be other women in there because they were in a very busy area. But no, she was in there on her own, wetting herself down in just a bra. It just felt like it was very much the whole male gaze thing at play. You know, I was I was wetting myself down watching it, to be fair. <laughs> it was uh, It's very, very 90s. Massively so, yeah. Yeah, it, it reminded me of the scene in Star Trek with Alice Eve, where she just yeah. gets like naked for no reason other than they can make her get naked. Mm. Cage has changed his clothes now. He's still wearing what appears to be that weird leather suit, but he's got a white button-down shirt and black tie on. And also they've changed his hair so he looks a little bit, little bit less sleazy. All of a sudden he's a good cop. Felt like it was such a tonal shift on the character, and there was no real justification for it other than someone had been killed. We were just supposed to buy that he's gone from someone who beats up people and takes their money, and now we're supposed to buy into him being this straight laced good cop without like we didn't get a face turn and I didn't really like that. I wanted a bit of an ex- bit more of an explanation other than he was trying to save his friend. I found that quite odd. Is as soon as he put, as soon as he changed shirt. <laughs> yeah, that that seemed to be literally all of his character um, exposition. I've got a different shirt on, so I'm a different man now. We find out that Lieutenant Dan is a bad, bad man. He's actually the man who is behind the plot to kill the secretary. He then meets up with his accomplices, whom he kills seemingly for no real reason. They were on their way out of the building. He could have just followed them, got in the car or whatever, and fucked off, and it'd have been golden. But he decides to kill them and stick around. With that classic kind of low camera angle as well, you looking up at him like he's a king. Mm. Yeah, as she said, very very nineties. I think in, in its approach at times. 
While searching for the now-dead redhead via the casino cameras, Cage clocks Carla Gugino. They'd never really explain what she has to do with anything. Mm, not until much that. later in the film. So Cage is, I know he's not looking for her, but he figures out that that she's now brunette, but she was the brunette, the blonde. And he's chasing her, but we don't know why all of a sudden he thinks she's linked, other than she just happened to be there. It's just bad storytelling, I thought, and to I, be honest. I never I never thought anything of it, because, just because the redhead obviously stands out, but other than that, of the people around the front of the ring, she was the only one that you'd look at, really. So it wasn't too much of a stretch for me. It was just one of them things. Oh, there was, a, there was another woman there, so let's find the woman. But he never did it with the the girl who had the the number seven board, the what the yeah. the ring girl. He never like tried to find her because she called him just before the assassination, mm. which seemed to distract him. So maybe it's because I'm not a, a homicide detective, but for me, I would think that call was placed in order to try and distract me. So I should find the ring girl, not this other woman. Yeah. See, maybe that that they should have done that as well. They should have said that we're looking for these three people, and then they find her. Then that would have explained it a bit better. Possibly, yeah. I, I just thought it was really bad storytelling. The, the script didn't facilitate anything for me at this point. Up to this point, we don't know that she's not a bad guy, do we? No. A bad girl, I should say, because all we hear her say is, "Are you going to regret it?" and something, something to the Secretary of State. Mm. So I suppose. Yeah, it's lazy in that we as the audience know why he's looking for her, but we don't know why Nick Cage is looking for her, if that makes any sense. Yeah. It's a strange I, one, yeah. isn't it? I, I didn't, I just couldn't marry the two up, personally. And did anybody, did anybody pick up on this before it was explained, the whole, she can't see anything? Because I, I don't know if I, I was like dozing in and out of like this film by this point, but when there's the whole she can't see anything, she keeps seeing like the shadows and she'll walk up to somebody, that guy who she ends up going off with back to his room and everything like that. I just didn't really pick up on any of that. I didn't see what, what that brings to the table, really, in terms of anything. No. Why, did they, why did they shoehorn that in? No, because it was it... just a weird character trait. I, I didn't get it. Yeah, because it's, it's completely abandoned later on. They never yeah. come back to it. Maybe there was a subplot that it, it made sense, and again, it ended up on the cutting room floor. Well, there's, it, there's a lot we'll come to later that it could explain everything in this film. <laughs> oh, right, any. okay. Right. Is this going to be like Batman versus Superman, where the director's cut would have explained everything? It would have explained some things. Right, okay. Fair enough. Um, so at this point, Carla Gugino, she pretends to be a sex worker, and she gets the dude who looks like Dennis Nedry from uh, Jurassic <laughs> Park back to his hotel room to try and escape. It wasn't him. I don't think <laughs> it was him. It, like, oh, he looked a spit of him, to be fair. He did. I, I only, first off, I thought, oh, it's, it's Nedry from, uh, from Jurassic But the second viewing, I thought, oh, no, it's not him. But yeah. Uh-huh. <laughs> Didn't say the magic word. <laughs> we get another shot of Carla in the toilet in her bra. Again, for no real reason, just because she's a very attractive lady. That seemed to be the only thing they wanted. She runs before Lieutenant Dan gets there, and she runs into Cage. She was trying to find out what is happening regarding the shooting. A lot of effort from Nicholas Cage to get to her when he has absolutely no idea how she's important. 
surely she, he should be sticking with his friend who he obviously doesn't know he's a bad guy, but you'd think they'd be working together. But at this point, they're just two completely separate entities. Very strange. Whilst recounting her experience, or maybe that should just be while she's dumping a shitload of exposition, because that's basically all, all it was <laughs> at this point. She explains that Cade, to Cage, sorry, that lieutenant is part of the assassination. This scene goes on for fucking ages as well. And it's going over the same thing we've already seen twice from two different points of view. It was just dare. They went, they went over the same subject twice on the stairwell. Yeah. Yeah, and that's all it was. It was just her point of view. But we've already had two other iterations of what was going on. Because we saw the original and we've seen Lieutenant Dan's version of it. So we've was, now just got hers. And There was some parts of it, well, we'll come on to it later, but there was bits of it where... Seeing it from different points of views, I quite liked that about it. I thought I that was, yeah, yeah. That was quite that. quirky. I, and I, that was one of the things I thought, oh, yeah, I'll remember this film for this. Not not much else, but I remember it for this. You know what but it reminded that... me of, uh, Stu? You, 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 you ever see that film Vantage Point? Yes. You just reminded me of that. That's all I could think about mm. when I was when I was seeing it. I think they did a really good job of it as well. Um just having, you know, feeding us little elements each time, but even swerving us with things that didn't actually happen, which I thought was quite yeah. a nice touch. I think it would have been fine had that scene in particular not gone on for as long as it had. It felt very much to me like they were trying to pad the movie out at this point. Like they'd shot the load and they were just trying to wait a bit more time before giving us the, the main event. And I don't know, it just wasn't for me. I it was quite it was... badly made at that point. It, it was almost because I thought uh, they they spent so much time talking to each other that surely they're going to be caught up by here. Yeah. And yeah, <laughs> like it's not like they were hiding; they were just sat down on the staircase where people should be walking through. You'd think. Yeah. Mm, yeah. Um, like oh yeah, so at this point in the film, I was completely bored. I had to keep rewinding it because I kept finding myself just playing games on my phone. So I know I just completely checked. I was like five minutes through and I thought, oh shit, I don't know what's been going on in this film because I've been doing this nonogram game where you've got to create patterns and stuff. So I thought, yeah, that that's a bad sign if I'm not actually paying any attention. You're right though. Um, I fell asleep mm. for a bit of it. I'm not going to lie. This, that never happens. I'm not asleep. I, I when I'm watching something, I tend to try. But I fell asleep and I had to rewind it. Mm. So did um, I. Yeah. It, it's probably all the same bit as well. It was like mine was. It mine was, was, it, it was when end, um, mine was when it was they were in the um, they were in like the security room and he wanted to look at the footage on his own and then Lieutenant Dan came in and creeped yeah. downstairs like in like uh, insidious. That, that's literally and, the next <laughs> scene. Yeah. So I think we all checked out roughly the same point of this movie. <laughs> Yeah, it just, I, I don't know, it, it just didn't hold any attention whatsoever. There was too much talking and not enough action for a film that had been built up on such a frenetic, action-packed start. It just died a death pretty much straight away after that. So Cage and Dan, they finally come face to face. Dan gives him his evil bad guy monologue, explaining why he's really the good guy in all of this. Why do big name actors always have to do this? They've got to justify their actions. They can't just be a dick. They've got to have a reason for being a dick. And surely it'd be more fun to be like um, Gary Oldman in The Fifth Element. He's just an asshole and that's it. 
and it's brilliant and he looks like he had so much fun mm-hmm. but anyone else no no i've got to tell you why i'm this way and it's just fucking boring especially in this film it, it doesn't help it's bad guy 101 it's, it has to be done in these kind of films it certainly feels like it it's like harry and marvin home alone telling, <laughs> yeah. him, telling him their plan <laughs> twice at least that's funny though <laughs> I think the only time so far we've seen it be done in any any acceptable way is Ed Harris in The Rock, I think. Yeah. I think that's the only time where we've actually... The, the, the character has been so convincing enough that they believe their own spiel that you can almost see their side, whereas this definitely didn't feel like that at all. I, I can't even remember what his piss-poor excuse was for why he had to kill the Secretary of State. Because he... He was the one who was opposing the the bill about the, the weapons or something. Oh, we ever mentioned the weapon? It, it doesn't really matter though, does it? <laughs> like it, it is a MacGuffin. It's just there to move the plot along. It has no real purpose. The whole reason for someone being shot in the first place was to cover up a thing about a dodgy a dodgy weapons. Well, or some kind of satellite weapon that doesn't work. It's... Yeah, but but I mean that that's it in a nutshell, isn't it? It's like a it's, it's just... like a Bond it's like a Bond plot. Even as someone who doesn't like Bond, <laughs> I would buy that a lot more than what we got here. Like it'd be it would look be a bit better in a Bond film that's a bit more tongue in cheek. Whereas how, I don't how, felt this was. How much better would this film have been if this was a plot about Nick Cage's a shady cop? There's the boxer takes a dive and it's there's a murder at the at the fight, but it's just about it's just about dodging money and bookies and he's got a cop friend that's not a the high ranked official and it's, he's actually in on the mafia and it was more of a mafia related film or it was more of a gangster related film than this whole Secretary of State, everything like that. It would have been so much better. It would have been so much more right, relatable and believable and like they could have ramped up the violence on it a little bit more as well and they could you know, it could have just been feels like a proper opportunity wasted with how good the first kind of 20, 25 minutes were. Yeah. Okay. I just have to check. Enemy, Enemy of the States was the same year. So it was all that kind of surveillance. Conspiracy surveillance. theory. Yeah, oh, conspiracy okay. theories, weapons, and governments controlling everyone, like coronavirus now, people. <laughs> and um, <laughs> it's it was that kind of, like, the end of the X-Files kind of, Alien conspiracies are turned just anti-government, so there was a lot of this shit around. I think it just mm. got lumped into this film, and as per usual, let's say half an hour in, it's two films in one. <laughs> yeah, it, it very does, very much does feel that way. But I mean, it's Brian De Palma who's directed it, so Brian De Palma is someone I, I would imagine to do more of the mafiosa-style films and do something that Matt has just described rather than an enemy of the state type of film. Mm. So it, like the director, like even his normal work would be geared towards something completely different. And I think that's why it feels like it was two films. It almost felt like he tried to do his normal shtick for the first part. And then he was trying to do something different and it didn't work. So Cage and Gagino get saved when a police van rolls up and stops Lieutenant Dan from shooting them. They get saved by Deus Ex Machina, 
the cheapest of cheap shit endings. They get saved by dumb luck. I <laughs> hate that when that happens. So it just so happens that someone's driving by just as they needed to be there. No, like don't don't have a ghost in the machine saviour. I really hate it. Yeah, I thought they were. I thought they were going to go with the gruesome that massive ball thing, whatever it was on the floor, was going to get whipped up in the tropical storm and actually smash into Lieutenant Dan at the end. And that was going to be the end of the film. And that was mm. going to be like the Cause they built up this whole tropical storm slash hurricane that they mentioned a few times with the, the with the, the reporter. And they kept focusing on that, on that thing yeah. as if it was going to be of more importance than it was. Um, it was just strange, just strange. Yeah. Well, that was the end. But if okay. you look, if you look in the credits, ILM accredited in the in the actual credits of the film, despite what do ILM do? Special effects. And there was a, apparently a massive tidal wave at the end of the film, and they cut it out. Right. Okay. That's, that's why when he says something, he says something about nearly drowning, because that's what. Because I, I thought, hang on a minute, have I have I missed something here? And so I rewound it and watched that whole fighting with the silly ball and the 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 whatever it was that went through the wall. Mm. I thought, well, something, unless this is missing from this copy of the film, like the Bad Commando DVD copy, um, I thought, well, something's not right here. Then I'll, and then you have the, the thing with the jewel. And so I thought, well, surely that's not the end. <laughs> and then I looked it up, and apparently they, they did. They filmed the whole sequence, and there's a whole thing, a tidal wave hitting the side, and then the, the ball would have been involved, and it would have washed everyone away, which would have been a decent point because the whole tropical storm thing throughout the whole start of the film mm-hmm. and why that why they're stuck there in the first place and it was stuck, just took out <laughs> jesus christ lifted and shifted it was yeah wow. so it, it was took out of the film but then the line about nearly drowning was left in <laughs> that's that's very cheap isn't it good god Yes, as you say, throughout the film, they have played on this this tropical storm and the fact that the uh, the, the Coliseum or I can't is it the I can't remember what the the arena was called anyway that this was about to be demolished and they play on it all the way through and there is absolutely zero payoff to it in the end. Strange. And then Lieutenant Dan shoots himself in the heart. <laughs> why, if if you're going to commit suicide and try and escape from it, why would you shoot yourself in the heart? He's gone the Texas tornado route, which is a very strange thing to do. We then get a montage of Cage. He wins an award, becomes a hero, and then gets done for being a corrupt cop. The end, or so I thought, but apparently there's an after credit scene, which I have not seen. So, gentlemen, what have it's I missed? Not, it's not after credits. It's in the credits. It's the in credits the queue. It, okay. it never goes to black. It's the strangest thing, isn't it, Stu? Because it's like you're watching these these workmen, and I thought oh, something's something's amiss here. Like we we we're constantly focusing on these workmen doing something, and I'm like, what the hell is going on? And then it focuses on this bloke's hand for an uncomfortably long amount of time, and um, his hands leaning up against the post. Yeah, and then Stu, what do we get? What do we reveal? And then he moves his hand out the way, and there's a jewel in the cement. And exactly, you, you, Andy's eyes are rolling in, in his head trying to think of what it means. And apparently, it's someone who was one of the women who was thrown in is it the, the, the um, red-headed one. It's it, the red-headed woman, yeah. She was at some point in the film. She had we a saw, ring. 
she had a ring on, but there's a bit in the film when someone has a body in a body bag and he's pushing it down into something, but it's like it's not even explained. And that's her in the in the um in, in put, put into a vat of cement. So there's, her, I, I don't know no what right, to say to that. Like, <laughs> no rhyme or reason. There's no explanation for it. It's not like it's even a, like a swerve at the end. Like we care. Like it makes no. It's it's like Stu said. They've took a chunk out of the film, and that should have been like a cliffhanger or a swerve at the end. But because they missed this bit, it as if we meant to care about it. Yeah, because she's not like a. a, a <laughs> just shaking his head here. <laughs> she's not like on the FBI's most wanted list. And so, just because she's dead, and it proves that she's dead, it doesn't matter, because she's dead, and she was a <laughs> she was a minor criminal, and they 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 spend ten minutes zooming in on a concrete post to show a duel, and then it goes off. And it's and just but it's just like that's utterly ignorable because, like like my reaction to when you said there was a duel, I'm like. Yeah, and and what's that got to do with anything? Were they smuggling diamonds or? Okay, right. <laughs> this this film's shit. It's <laughs> no other way of putting it. So it clocked in at just over ninety minutes. I think it, including the um the, the credits, I think it was ninety six minutes in total, something like that. So they could quite easily have put in another 10, 15 minutes just to add a bit of cohesion and try and get the story together. Yeah. So you would have had the you would have had the the storm, which has been which is relevant why they're stuck there, as well as being locked in for that reason. Mm. Then you would have had the boulder thing, which would have made sense. You could have had the thing where she's thrown into the cement mixer, not in a body bag, which would mm. have made sense at the end. You, you don't need the end anyway. And you could have had not a kind of a montage of his life going from good to bad for no reason at all. And then he's just casually saying, oh, yeah, I'll split up with her. Let, I'll kiss you now. Why? Yeah. And that was weird that at the end, she decides that she's going to wait two years for him. <laughs> like, you've got no real relationship other than you nearly died together. And, and it's like, oh, yeah, I'll wait for you. I've only met you twice before, love. But, yeah, yeah, fuck off. Rubbish. <laughs> it could have been at least could have been like exciting if when they're doing that whole lifting that concrete actually there was one of the missiles in there that actually they hadn't stopped it all along and they they still had these weapons or something at least that would have given us a bit of intrigue but no it was just some jewel for a person that we can't quite remember i was reading an online forum about it and they they hinted at the fact that it was actually the boxer not the redhead but then there right. was there were the but even then even if it was the boxer who cares like this it, it makes no it makes no bearing really it doesn't have a, a major impact on Anything. on the film at all it's it's on the outside of the post as well so it's it's structurally not safe so, <laughs> so by the rules and the regs they need to uh, go back then yeah they have to the take it down right so IMDb this has got a six point zero. Like I think that's quite high, if I'm honest. The Metacritic score was a 52. Rotten Tomatoes cricket, uh, cricket, critic score is a 41%. And I was quite surprised to see that the Rotten Tomatoes fan score was lower. It was 35. Usually, it's the fan score which is the higher of the two, but it wasn't in this case. The budget on this film is an astounding 73 million. 
Really and I'll, I'll bet 20 million of that was on ILM, which you've never got used. Probably. That, that's the only explanation. It's, it's, they must have spent a shit ton on some of the effects, which never even made it. But the box office, it actually made a profit, 103.9 million. Hmm. I mean, if it, if it, like you said, Stu, that was the, the flavour of the month at the time or that, that year or a couple of years, then I can, I can see why it would have. Because at that point, it's got names that people, you know, would, would be interested in a quite in culture at the time. And it's mm. a subject that people want, you know, are, are interested in at that time. I could see probably why people have gone and seen it, but I'm astounded at that budget. Yeah. Because, like, apart from the actors themselves and the the boxing scene or scenes, I suppose, what, what have they thrown the money at there? God knows. So... We're on a run here. So Nick Cage in 95 would have done Leave in Las Vegas and won his Oscar. Gary Sinise, I, I think he was nominated, but I don't think he won his Oscar for um, Forrest Gump. So we've got two who've got credibility. And then Cage went on to do The Rock, Conair, Face Off, City of Angels and then Snake Eyes. So Cage is on a hot streak at the minute. Yeah, yeah. Sure. So I, I assume that's why people were going because... We, we know we get a certain type of film from Nick Cage when you look at his, his previous year. Well, I do know what some of the budget went on. Sure, you'll like this. There was no less than three different wig providers. For this <laughs> As I saw it in the credits, including um, there was a company called London Wig, like manufacturers or something like that. But yeah, I just thought this was a strange, like how, how many wigs could they possibly require for one film that uses three different... Um, manufacturers. Well, obviously, we had the blonde wig on Gugino. Was the redhead wearing a wig as well? I she was, wasn't so. she? Or was she not? Cage was wasn't. Sinise, well, I don't think Sinise was. Sin- yeah, Cage's, uh, Cage's hairline in this. It looked like worse than ours. He's offended by his, <laughs> his own hair, was offended by his face. Hmm. <laughs> <laughs> So, the good, the bad, and the crazy. Stu? The good was the first 20 minutes. It was, like we've already said, it was entertaining. It was 12, minute, 12 minutes of which was a one-shot. Mm. Superbly. Um, and they, they had some good ideas. Again, the theme of this show. <laughs> the bad, just because it, half of it seems to have been left on the, in the editing suite for no real reason at all. But why? They've they've made a film worse for no reason at all, mm. and especially if, with a budget like that, which must have gone on the effects. Otherwise, why ILM even mentioned? I mean, they, they didn't provide what the blimp cam did they? <laughs> that don't cost <laughs> twenty million quid. No. Um, and Crazy Cage for the crazy at the start, and just some of the some of the decisions were just baffling, mm. but. Again, it's two two films in one. One that showed was really entertaining and showed promise, and then one that was a lot of shit, really. <laughs> yeah, I mean, for my good, bad, and crazy, the good same issue. The first fifteen minutes I thought were really well done, beautifully shot. As you would expect from De Palma, you expected to have a lot of long, uh, unedited shots. Uh, it was really looked lovely, and it was a good, interesting opening to the film. The bad was the rest of the film from that point on, because 
it was just painfully boring. And the bad, I like the actual story, it was so contrived. Like I watched this film twice and I still don't really <laughs> understand why there was a problem with a weapons test and why that the Secretary of Defence had to die because of it. It wasn't accurate enough. So why has he got to die? Because he knew it wasn't accurate enough and they were covering it up. Ah. <sighs> uh, because just see, bad. It, it would have made more sense if they just killed her before she told him that it was it was broken. Yeah, no, uh, no one would give two shits, would they? Just some scientists dead. So that, at that point, he didn't know. He knew something was wrong because she spoke to him on the phone. How they, how they knew that, who knows? Mm. But other than that, it could have just been some wacko phoning him up. There was no proof until yeah. she gave it to him. So if they just if they bumped her off first, no one would give two fucks, and then we could have saved half her our lives. That's true. Uh, and Matt, what's your good, bad, and crazy? Uh, I really liked the the different viewpoints of what happened and the consistency of it all I thought was really well done and it was very over the top and I thought that was really really like both of you said it was shot very interesting for the first 20 minutes or so really really I was hooked I thought this is going to be great like because we we spoke about the film sparingly before this mm. and you you both kind of made it clear that you thought it was shot and I thought what are these guys on about? This is going to be another one of those where one of us disagrees with the other. A boy, did I agree pretty quickly. Um, yeah. <laughs> the bad, it was just a complete lack of interest in the villain, which is something that really irritates me in film. Mm. Like, I just, do we care? Like, he's got such, he's got such little emotion and we don't really understand the, the reasoning behind what he's doing. And we don't, you know, it, it almost feels as if, the villain is MacGuffin in it, in itself just mm. because we have to have one. Um, it was a real, it was just a real wet lettuce when it came to that. I was just, I was really disappointed with how the film panned out and, you know, Nick Cage goes from this really sleazy cop, which is a really enjoyable thing to watch. And he does it really, really well to out of nowhere, just being this willing to take a beating for this woman he's never met yeah. and like be, you know, willing to pretty much die for her and doing the right thing which he's never had a problem doing before um so yeah just it's it's just to see it really hit a sour note one thing though and this is this is purely just an annoyance more than anything to spread the crazy really more than anything are we meant to believe that that boxer ruiz is meant to be a heavyweight boxer he had like bigger man tits than i have (laughs) and he was dancing around diving around like that he's so out of like it was such bad casting um and, like, the only thing I can see, it's either just amazing foreshadowing of the actual Ruiz that knocked out Anthony Joshua. Because that's the only <laughs> thing that is, like, relatable to the two. Yeah. Um, it's just really, really strange. And you know what, actually? I would have liked to have seen more of the whole Tyler taking the dive. Like, they actually had real emotion with him when we were watching him, like, um, in the last few minutes of his, like, professional career before he, he takes a dive. And that's probably, like, the, the most emotional bit of the film that actually got mm. me and it's nothing to do with the plot it could have literally been anybody doing anything, anything yeah. else just a reason to get them in that arena it's a shame yeah i did like i did like the bit where in talking about the, the, the boxing section where it went first person for for no real reason at all um in the in the dressing room with him mm. yeah. i thought that was because we talked about first person viewpoints on before and how they're normally quite shit and i thought that one and then how it kind of how it kind of pulled away from him as well 
to show he's in front of the camera. I thought that was really well done, that scene. Mm. But again, I mean, we, the, we look, we're going into style rather than content again. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, this is a spoiler alert for one of the questions, but I thought that the, the dude who played the boxer was probably the best actor in this film. Mm-hmm. And, yeah. and like he's in here with some big hitters as well. Like we, we know that we can get good performances out of everyone else in this film, but he was probably the standout for me. Well, you mentioned that scene, Stu. Have you seen the uncensored Smack My Bitch video for The Prodigy? Yes. Mm-hmm. It just reminded me of that. Like, I thought we're going to turn around at the end. It's going to be like something completely different. Yeah, I enjoyed that scene as well. Mm, uh, there's another film, um, Peeping Tom, which is told from the point of view of the killer. That That's quite an interesting one, which is shot in a, a similar way. If uh, if you like that, that sort of visual. It's worth checking out anyway. Well, we've got to mention Peep Show, then my favourite TV show of all time. Yeah, of course. Obviously, large swathes of that at the film's first person, which I think helps because it makes it so uncomfortable. Oh, yeah, yeah, 100%. Yeah, (laughs) love it. So, did you enjoy this film? Matt, are you recommending this to your friends and family? (laughs) No, no, I'm not. And this, You know why this film is unforgivable? Because it doesn't even fall into the so shit it's good character like category. Yeah. It's, It's just shit. It's not City of Angels shit in that actually you can poke fun at it and quite quite enjoy it mm-hmm. because it's shit it, it's 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 bad and I'm really annoyed because if you'd have like if I'd have had a power cut at 30 minutes <laughs> and anyone go oh yeah I'm gonna watch the rest of that it's class you should watch it you should watch it um but no you know sadly not no I'm not recommending it sadly Stu are you in the same boat even I can't say I can't I couldn't Look myself in the mirror after saying to someone, "Watch this; it's fun," because it's not. <laughs> it's re- it's a, it's not like that's a bit of red the bush, bushy because people expecting me to go on a on a rant again. But it, it's just disappointing. It's not even mm. it didn't even make me angry because they had a they had a good opportunity and they clearly did have the footage and they just threw it away. And, but mm. why? Just baffling. So you yeah. I, you can't you can't recommend it because it doesn't make any sense. <clears throat> I mean. I've got nothing really to say about this film. This film lacked any real depth. It was just surface level, boring shit. <laughs> That's all I can say about it. There was no depth. It was just everything was on the top. And yeah, no, I'm not recommending it either. So Nick Cage, good or bad? Obviously, I've already nailed my colours to the mask. Mast, even. His character flip-flops. He went from being a sleazebag to a schmuck to a dipshit, to a hero cop, but without any explanation at any point. It's really bad. And I know that's down to the writing and the direction, but we know that Nick Cage has got quite a bit of pull at this point in his career. Really, I felt he could have done a lot better. So it's a no from me. Stu? This one I was actually torn on because that first 20 minutes is absolutely exceptional. Mm. But then... Like you said, it is the writing that's the problem, and it is the film that's the problem. And when you can't, you've got nothing really to work with. I mean, what do you like when you're sitting in a, on a stairwell for five minutes? What, what are you supposed to do there? And it's because it doesn't make any sense. It's hard to say because he's not bad in it. It's just average. <laughs> you go, you're going on fifty-one, forty-nine here. Yeah, ju- just about just for that first twenty-five minutes because that was really fun. And that's right, okay. that's, pu- that's pushing it a lot, but just about. Well, I mean, it, you're talking about 15 to 20 minutes of a 
nearly 100 minute film (laughs) (laughs) okay fair enough he's he's in a lot of them first 20 minutes though yes true true what about yourself matt yeah i mean he does make chicken salad out of chicken shit in this film Mm. (laughs) like um and again you know he, he does the best with what he what he's given i think the scene when he's getting beaten up and him kind of walking around like the walking wounded very nearly made me <laughs> say no. I'm I'm going to give him a yes purely on the basis that I think if he was given the opportunity to do more of what he did at the start of the film, mm. he would have continued it and it, we, we as the audience would have enjoyed the film more on the back of it and that is what makes a good actor. I think even the best actors on the planet would have struggled with the writing that they were given, but we wouldn't call them bad actors because of it. I know, I know the question is on this film and this film alone. So yeah, I'm going to say, I'm going to say, I'm sticking with my guns. I'm going to say yes. Asterix. Just about. <laughs> Fair enough. I think the probably, probably was lost in the edit somewhere, to be honest. That's fair enough. So we go from Snake Eyes to Private Eye, as we're going to talk about 8mm next. Sir, could I interest you in a battery-operated vagina? Well, it's tempting, but no thanks. Okay. I'd hate to see you caught in one of those everyday situations that calls for a battery-operated vagina and you just don't have one, you know what I mean? I'll risk it. So, living life seamlessly, nice life with his wife, played by Catherine Keener, and his child. Nick Cage gets called to a house of an upper-class old broad. She has discovered a snuff film in her deceased husband's belongings. She wants Cage to find out if the snuff film is actually real or not. I thought when Nick Cage was watching the snuff film, I thought that was a really good bit of acting from him. So we don't get to see all of the snuff film being played out. We watch a lot of it through Cage's eyes. We see him really struggling with what is going on in this, quite frankly, what would be a horrific viewing. So I thought it was really well done at that start when we get to see his reactions. He was like a, a really bleak soccer Saturday. <laughs> well, I thought to myself, he's, he's never been in like a WhatsApp group with more than five lads because... Like, <laughs> that's the kind of videos get banded around all the time these days Dan. um it was just uh it was a little much for me it was a little hokey it was a little bit like man gets hit in the groin with football more of like a ooh than him being like genuinely disgusted about what he's seeing um mm. it, i mean it definitely wasn't the inspiration for gogglebox that's for sure <laughs> watching him watching him watching the snuff film but um yeah it was it was okay i the, the very start of the film had a, a thing for me, and I thought they were going to play on it a little more. Like, mm. when we instantly know that he lies to his wife about yeah. the smoking. Yeah. I I wondered... We didn't really get a payoff for this, and I didn't... Um, I didn't get it. I didn't get it. I thought they're, 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 they're showing this to kind of... Um, to play on it later, and I didn't really get the... feel like I got the, the payoff from it. I think we're supposed to take from it that he tries to protect his wife from the big Truth. bad world okay because obviously then he goes on his trial of porn he doesn't tell her that he's <laughs> going into the the murky worlds of 
you know, death uh, sex and the likes. I, I don't know how to describe it. You know what I mean? He well, doesn't well, tell her what's actually going on. He car boot sale of porn, basically. <laughs> but yeah, he tries to hide like the what's going on from her. Maybe I, I don't know. That's where I got from it. But you are right. It does set him up to be a bit of a shit that he just lies to his wife willy nilly. Yeah, I, I I just thought the same as Matt. I thought, well, they're just showing that he's a liar. I don't mm. think anything anything else will be. But I suppose you only get to that conclusion once you've got to the end of the film. If yeah, you know what I mean. So maybe I don't know. I don't know. So he returns home to say goodbye to his child and wife before he begins his trial, heading to Cleveland. As part of his investigation, he discovers the victim was named Marianne Matthews, and he contacts her mother. While searching her house, Cage finds Marianne's diary, which states that she's going to Hollywood to become a star. Marianne's mother confides in Cage that no matter what, she would rather know what has happened to her daughter. Cage doesn't tell her the grisly truth. We then get to see a very young Norman Reedus. Oh, yeah. But he does not look any fucking different, even <laughs> though this film is over 20 years old. Mm. Obviously just, got very good genes. He just ain't got a beard, that's the only difference. He, he speaks yeah. the same. Yeah, he hasn't changed at all. Mad. So Cage then goes to Hollywood. He meets Max California, played by Joaquin Phoenix. Does Phoenix ever give a bad performance? Like, there's just something about him. I think in everything I've seen, he's been never he's been never less than really good. I honestly can't think of a bad performance he's ever put in. No, he's he's great in this. One thing we need to mention: what isn't? There's this soundtrack when he's driving through Hollywood, which oh. absolutely cut through me. The banger <laughs> like, stuff. It, no, it was like Lady Smith, Black Man Zambo, or something. It was like it was. It was just I just couldn't get my head around it. It made no sense. It like it, it didn't it didn't fit in at all with what it's they were trying. Very place. Yeah, yeah, it's mm. massively off putting. Yeah, I liked Phoenix's opening lines when he first meets Cage. Sir, can I interest you in a battery operated vagina? I would hate to see you in one of those everyday situations which calls for a battery operated vagina, and you don't have one. And that just really tickled me because immediately we know that California is a Fairly playful dude. He's very light and upbeat, even though he works in a pawn shop and he's about to go and investigate a murder. But we know that he's he seems to be a good dude when the people we're starting to meet generally aren't good. I mean, he's, he, to be fair, he has got like six magazines in his arms at that point <laughs> when he asks yeah. him that question. <laughs> True. Have you ever been in one of them places? No. Actually, no, I've seen. So for work, I'm an inspector of business properties. Work. Yeah, uh, and a colleague of mine has had to investigate, uh, investigate, inspect. Um, have you heard of the Foxy Lady, which is a porn cinema in Bilston? It's a big pink building. You cannot miss it. And like the first thing he did when he got back from the inspection was showed me all these pictures. He was like, "The fuck's this supposed to be?" So yeah, I think it's full of uh, all weird and wonderful things. Dear me. And I went there, my Griffo had a. It used, it's still there in, on Broad Street next to where the charcoal grill used to be. There's um, a shop there, and it was a, a sticker book punk, it was called. He, he sold like band t shirts and stuff like that. Mm. But but downstairs, because he, they never really checked, I think, who owned it before. And there was a sex dungeon downstairs. 
<laughs> with handcuffs on the walls and everything. And it was like 14 year old girls went to that shop to buy t shirts, and that was downstairs. Oh, good God. I suppose at least he wasn't selling stuff from the dungeon because that would have been a bit, bit much, I suppose. No. <clears throat> so Cage then hires California to help him in the porn world. He directs him to a talent scout, Eddie Poole, played by the late, great James Gandolfini. It was great to see Gandolfini in a role. It, it feels like a lifetime since I've seen anything with him in. And he's, he's another one, just never puts a bad performance in anything. He was excellent in this as well. Yeah. Really, really excellent. Yeah. Um, not to give spoiler alert for the end, but the supporting cast absolutely carries Cage through this film for me. Undoubtedly. Um, yeah. Yeah. Mm. Uh, Cage asks about Marianne. He gets batted off by Paul. So Cage then bugs his office trying to get some dirt. Paul manages to leave Cage to Dino Velvet, played by <laughs> Peter Stormare. Fucking Peter Stormare. What an actor. Again, just as you just said, the, the supporting cast is just fantastic. And Stormare is another one. He gives a crazy Cage performance in this. Proper yeah. over-the-top crazy bastard stuff. Brilliant. Have you, have you played Until Dawn yet? That I told you about four years ago. I've not played it, no. Where Peter Stormare is a is a supporting character in that film in that game, mm. yeah, yeah, as pretty much as himself in the um is like the narrator of the game kind of thing where he, mm. he cuts back to him and he's it, it's the same in the uh, the Man of Medan series as well. He's the, the same character in that, and he's excellent in that as well. It's obviously full motion capture and all that kind of performance stuff. Yeah, he's just excellent, even in even in that role. He's brilliant. I, I love him in Prison Break as well. So good. And again, he plays a similar kind of, obviously not a porn director, but he just plays this badass. Wonderful. Oh, my God. He's in, he's in Prison Break? Yeah, yeah. I've just clicked now. Oh, of course he's, yeah. um, yeah, he's John, is. Yeah, he's something our brute, see? Yeah, yeah. He's really, really good in it as well. And he's in Fargo, the film, as well. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. He's the one yeah. who feeds um, Buscemi into the chipper. Great. <laughs> Fucking love that film. Spoilers. Spoiler alert, yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, Dino Velvet, he's an artiste porn director. He makes bespoke BDSM videos. I thought BDSM taught people how to drive. <laughs> <laughs> no wonder the seatbelts are a little bit tight. Uh, Cage gets a meeting with Velvet to commission a one-of-a-kind film. His demands for the film are that, one, he can be there to watch it, and two, that Velvet uses the machine. The machine was the man who was at, in the snuff video, and he's the one who delivered the fatal blows to... Uh, I could probably phrase that better. He's the one who killed Marianne at the beginning of the film. <laughs> Before the video shoot, Cage sends California home, as he fears for his safety. If only California listened. When Cage turns up for the video shoot, he gets ambushed. Paul Velvet Machine and the old lady's lawyer from the start. They knew Cage's game and they were there to stop him. So they kidnap California to ensure that Cage does as they say and gives him the snuff film. Once Velvet gets the video, he tells Machine to kill California. Cage then sows the seeds of doubt amongst the bad guys. Velvet kills the lawyer. The lawyer kills Velvet. Cage escapes. Cage informs the old lady that her hubby was a dirty sex pervert and that the video was real and he tells that they will go to the police together and expose everybody. She kills herself and leaves Cage <laughs> with the money and 
gives money to Mary Ann's family, and she just asks them to forget it that what happened, as if you could after all that. Cage doesn't forget. He wants some form of vengeance for Mary Ann and her family. He goes to Paul to try and get the identity of a machine. Paul doesn't know. Cage forces Paul to take him to the site of the murder. Cage calls Mary Ann's mother and tells her what happened. And if she wants, he will hurt the men who did this to her. She tells Cage to hurt them. I loved that scene where they were in that hut. Just the action, the acting between Cage and Gandolfini was brilliant. Gandolfini was such a shitbag horror that I'm amazed that Cage would have needed to call the mom to find out if it was okay. Like, even if he hadn't been part of a snuff film, he deserved to die. He was a horrible, horrible human being. You know, this, this uh, it must have been like 20, 25 minutes of film. I didn't even move. I was just completely gripped by mm. it. was, I was, because uh, I, I thought I had seen it before. And I, I probably have, but again, it was a long time ago. But I was, I was sitting there with my popcorn, obviously, and um, large Coke. And I didn't move. I didn't move for about 20, 25 minutes through the middle of the film. I, thought, I was just totally absorbed by it all. And obviously, because it's all grimy and grim shit anyway, which is always fun. Um, but there was just something about it. I mm. just loved it. Just transfixed. Yeah. It was, yeah. It was great, wasn't it? And Gandalfini, he. The way he was goading him on, and then the way that we could see him turning, they, they go for this whole. Um, I can't remember the exact phrase that California uses. It says the devil will get you immediately, like the devil will get you eventually in this game, or something like that is the phrase yeah. that they use. And we see kind of Cage's descent into madness or descent into that world as we go along in the film. And I think the way that they, you know, for me at least. I didn't expect him to kill him. I thought he'll do the honourable thing as a as a honourable man and just call the police and they'll arrest him and then they'll uncover the dirty thing. And actually, they didn't, and that was like really cool to see. Mm. Now we're swinging into a different. We're into a different area now, and how are we gonna how are we gonna play with that? But yeah, really, really well done. Um, something that I wasn't expecting, so it felt really fresh. Mm. See something a little different. Yeah. So after beating Paul to death with the butt of his gun and burning down the murder scene, Cage then finds the machine. They have a scrap. Cage stabs the machine, who takes his mask off. I don't really understand what the purpose of that scene was supposed to be. Like, he's just a normal-looking dude, but it's not a supernatural film, so I was expecting him to look like a normal dude. Mm. I think it was like you expect someone like that to be like, well, like Greasy Cage from <laughs> Snake Eyes, <laughs> like, like that kind of like that you kind of bloke you see like licking windows and stuff. That, <laughs> you know what I mean? One one of them yeah. one of them one of them types, and to see him just like someone who works in IT was a bit okay. I think that that's what they were going for, but because he was t- he was almost too normal. Mm. Yeah, okay. And because they were they were how he was. He was built up and he had that tattoo on his hand and all that stuff. And he was a bit like the um, the mountain and stuff from Game of Thrones. And he was an unstoppable force. Actually, you know, he looked a bit like Dean, to be fair. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure Dean will like that, uh, that comparison. Well, Dean loves a bit of uh, BDSM anyway, and he'll, he'll thank me hugely for saying that. But, <laughs> yeah, I think, I think that was the whole point of it, that he was just a, a normal guy. And that mm. a normal guy can be pulled into this world of debauchery and 
sickness? Yeah, I I saw it as um, them trying to paint the picture that actually normal human beings are so close to this world mm. that we don't, it's not as far underground as we actually think that it is, that normal people get wrapped up in this really horrible shit and it's so easily accessible that an, as a normal average person that has no special qualities, strengths, powers can be this, um, you know, underground sex sensation in this world. That, <laughs> do you know what I mean? Uh, I think it's just trying to say that we're, we're all actually not too far away from, from this. If, if you look in the right places and how that's actually a problem. Okay. I'll get onto it in the, the next bit where I where I think of it. But you, okay. You know what? You know what I think. Why he's so confused? Because he is this kind of person. <laughs> I just think this is normal snuff films and everything. Yeah, we can't yeah. see what's on those DVDs in the background. Yeah, yeah. exactly. <laughs> we don't know what's up. <laughs> we, we've think... we've never seen the other two walls of this room. <laughs> Good point. Yeah, <laughs> it's mostly comic books to be honest. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> so that was eight millimeter. It was quite a straightforward film in, in actuality, in the end, I felt. Um, IMDb, 6.5. Metacritic, 19. The <sighs> Rotten Tomatoes fan score was a 52%. So, obviously, it's divided people. The Rotten Tomato critic score was a 21%. The budget on this was only 40, which, I mean, I, I suppose it's a... It, it almost looks like it's a um, indie film, almost... But it's still a big name director. We've got some big name stars. So to have a budget of 40 is quite incredible. But but the box office was 96.6 million. So it more than doubled its money. I'm surprised about that. Because I remember this film being everywhere. Mm. It was yeah, on, on the so- side of every bus. Yeah. Mm. Which for, for something of this subject matter is a bit weird, really. Well, you say yeah. sex, sex sells, isn't it? They say. I think you know people want to get a little titillation without actually having to go and watch a porno. So maybe that, maybe that's it. Maybe like, <laughs> you know, there are strange, there are stranger films to go and suggest to watch as a couple. I think. And no broadband then either. True. <laughs> yeah. Good point. It's fun. It's funny actually because when was this film made? Sorry. Ninety-nine. Uh, oh, ninety-nine. So well, I, yeah, I wouldn't have had internet then anyway, but. The world that we live in now, compared to the world kind of about ten years ago, I remember at uni, one of my close friends who sadly lives in Australia now, he made he made me an emergency porn disc for whenever the, if it again, the internet <laughs> went down. Um, <laughs> and like the world that we used to have to live in when that when that was a thing. I know it, it, it used to take it used to take a good couple of minutes on dial up to just download a picture, and then. You'd have to you have to save the picture if you or if you scroll down it'll go away and then you have to load it again. I thought, oh shit, it's like <laughs> it's like double it's like double double your money kind of thing. Do you do stick you, or twist? Yeah, do you get to the next one or do you stay where you are? So and you save it to a save it to a floppy so you see, hide it under the floorboards. Surely it wouldn't be floppy anymore. Oh no, no, that's not permanent. <laughs> so the good, the bad, and the crazy. Matt, do you want to kick us off? Uh, good, um, absolutely 100% Phoenix in this. Thought he was just, thought he was sensational. He was really, really likable as a character. He didn't bring the humour to a point where actually he becomes throwaway, but he just gives us um, a nice, um, 
kind of like Hades over the River Styx, really. A nice way of kind of guiding mm. us through this murky underworld um, without him being really overbearing and, and giving us a little bit of comic relief. I thought, I thought he was superb, but head and shoulders the best thing about the film for me. Um, the bad, Cage's really wooden phone voice. <laughs> he has this like voice on the phone. Now, I work managing people in a call centre and I hear this phone voice all the time. People completely like phoning it in. Like wanting to sound posh and when they're not and he mm. just he, he cage makes himself really unlikable at the start of the film when he's doing his pi work for me um the crazy it's more of an annoyance than a crazy why does every film that has any kind of perversion or anything like that have to have heavy metal music <laughs> come on guys like have you listened to the lyrics of like some rap music or some like grime music it's far more sexually oriented than any like black sabbath song or even industrial metal give it a break we're all nice people we don't all <laughs> like to watch the films and tie each other up maybe we do but not all of us leave us alone <laughs> Stu, what do you think <laughs> do you follow that um <laughs> I thought, again, with similar kind of thing, the, the good was the, everyone else, the supporting cast was superb, all of them. Yeah. yeah. It was a, it was completely believable in what it was. Mm. And for a film this dark, again, you're talking about a film about the dark side of the porn industry in the late 90s when, when, when was Train, train Spotting 96? Yeah, something like that. So you're already getting some like gritty kind of, I mean, all this gritty shit, it's class because you don't see it very often and when you do see it and it's done well it's really good mm. um so I, I like that because they kind of they did seem to nail it from what you'd expect it to be kind of like if you were in that kind of world obviously got no first-hand reference to say but it all seemed believable to me which is all you can ask for mm. um the bad the whole the whole relationship with his wife it just it was just weird mm. like how she was constantly phoning him up and the, the like why didn't was the baby like not in bed all the time? Mm. <laughs> <laughs> and you know, you you phone you expect to phone at that time of night and you think, okay, I'll, I'll put the baby down and surely that's gonna put it out of its routine. <laughs> no, I, the, the, I, the whole thing say... the, the just the interaction between the two of them was just a bit Yeah. I don't know if that was the intention to make it a bit strained. Could be. But what, just... what purpose did that serve, if that was the case? Yeah, exactly. It was like the fag thing from the start. Mm. The cigarette, Americans. Um, that whole thing was, it had points where it was showing you one thing, but then you could look deeper into it. But it didn't go anywhere. Mm. So apparently, but... according to, um, I think it's IMDb, I read it on, Joel Schumacher felt that that role was the most important one to cast, the one of the wife. <laughs> And I don't really know why, because she served no purpose to the film. Nick Cage could have just been a single man and it would have made no difference whatsoever. Well, yeah, because all all, he's, all she was there was for him to be guilty and lie to. Mm. Weird. Uh, and you're crazy, Stu? Just uh, whacking Phoenix's performance. This is just some of, them, some, of, some, of, some of the lines but and just some of the... He was almost he was out crazy in cage in parts, mm. but in a but good way. In a, in a very good way, yeah. yeah. In a very yeah. good way, yeah. So for mine, um, 
I know we've all heaped praise on the supporting cast, but I thought the one who played Mary Ann Matthews' mother, I thought she was brilliant. Mm. She she had such a sense of world weariness about her, like she'd seen some shit in her life. You genuinely felt like she'd been through the wars. I thought she was superb in it. And obviously it was such a small role, but I thought she was vital into humanising what was going on. Excellent. For me, the bad, I'm going to have to say Schumacher. Because originally David Fincher was supposed to direct this film. So we were supposed to get the director of Seven. And it was written by the writer of Seven. And instead we got the guy who made the shittest Batman film. (laughs) We got someone who's a good director, but he's very much a seen as a studio safe pair of hands. If we were given someone who's a bit of a maverick, I think this film could really have excelled. But unfortunately, that's not what we got. I felt you know quite what, let down. You know, when, when he died a few months ago, and we, we said about favourite Schumacher films, and I said that this was one of them, mm. because I, I generally like this film. And that's, I, that's, why I, that's why I knew that I had seen it before, because I don't remember loving it the first time mm. I saw it. But I couldn't remember, when I was watching it again, I couldn't remember a lot of it going forward. Yeah. Uh, and for me, the crazy, I'm the crazy in this one, because... I don't know why I thought this and Snake Eyes were two crazy (laughs) cage performances. They've ended up being two very downbeat almost performances, very, very safe performances for me. There was nothing where he really excelled in them. So I think I'm crazy for uh, completely misremembering both of these films. Never mind. So did you enjoy this film? Stu, you've just said that you're a fan of it from way back. Are you still a fan of it? Even more so now, but I think with a bit of context and a bit of age, I'm even more so. I loved it. It was great. Fair enough. Matt, what are you thinking? Completely the same. Absolutely loved it. Thought it was um it was really interesting the the way that they did it, the supporting cast, the plot, the messages through it. I just yeah, absolutely absolutely loved it it was everything i wanted it to be and i wasn't disappointed i feel really bad because i hated this film <laughs> but of course i remember reading the reviews when it was first released and when i saw the film thinking i don't understand why the reviews hate this film i remember really enjoying it when i first saw it 20 odd years ago but right here right now i understand why those critics absolutely slated it this film has no real depth this could have been a really interesting exploration of darkness within the human soul and it wasn't like there's that saying about um if you stare long into the void the void will stare back into you and rather than that this was just they're talking about the void stood near it they're not actually looking at it it felt very surface level. It was like they were trying to talk about stuff that was of real importance and it just didn't work. I, I just felt it was a real missed opportunity, this film was. So, obviously, I'm the odd one out again. No, it's, it's, different, it's different strokes, isn't it? Like, I, I wasn't in... This, this is probably the most damning thing that I'm ever going to say about Nick Cage. But because it was a Nick Cage film, I wasn't expecting to be challenged okay. in terms yeah. of what I'm viewing. So I went into it with little emotional investment or emotional expectations. Um, 
And so for that reason, actually, he hit the notes because I wasn't expecting much because, sorry, it's a Nick Cage film of this era. Mm. Um, so that, I don't know that. But for you, obviously, differently. And this this was my first view of it as well. I might add as well. So maybe in the future, I might feel I might feel that I want to be challenged more by it. Mm, maybe. I think you maybe. are you are judging it. If if it was made now, and it was like this, then I think you'd have a point. But you got to think: is there many other films of this, well, similar to this, from the late nineties? Possibly not. But well, that's may, what, maybe that's a good reason. That's what I, I always kind of think with these things, where to take it in context of when it was made, as well. Mm. And you can do it well for this for about obviously Transformers every time whenever, but the um for this one I think I liked it then and I still like it now so I can see what you mean you you wanted it you wanted proper on screen death you want you wanted more uh, yeah you you yeah. wanted him you wanted him to go full um like in ID you wanted him to go full dark mm. side and be part of their world um yeah. but I just I, I think that yeah. I don't I think, think it would I think Matt put it right. I wanted to be challenged. And I don't think there's a challenge in this film. But I think knowing that David Fincher was supposed to direct, I think there is a possibility we could have got something which was challenging. It would have been completely fucked up if he directed this. Well, apparently it was supposed to be just shot on a handheld camera if it was going to be done with Fincher. Really? Yeah. I think that, that just sounds really interesting. It, don't me, you might have shit the bed, but it might have been brilliant. Who knows? Sadly, we'll never find out. So that leads us on to Nick Cage, good or bad. I think a large part of why I'm going to say bad is down to the script, but I don't think his character work was very strong. For pretty much 90 minutes of this film, things just happen to him. He doesn't have any agency. Things just occur around him, and he doesn't really react to them, and they don't change him until he snaps. But that snap feels very out of the blue. I know he's been through a lot of shit, but we haven't seen the effects. It's not like with, say, Daenerys in Game of Thrones. We see things happen to her. She changes the character. And then the snap isn't so much a snap as revealing her true colours. This is just a jarring going from being a very middle-of-the-road ho-hum kind of a guy to a killer. And I don't think that worked. Um, there's that one scene when Cage goes to the sex porn club with Max California and there's no reaction. He's just utterly deadpan. He looks bored, if anything. <laughs> if we had a performance in the vein of, say, Stanley Goodspeed in The Rock, we see things happen to him and he grows as a character, going from a scientist to a superhero. And we don't get that. And, and that's what we needed. We needed that progression. So it's bad again from me. Stu, what do you think? I am actually... Uh, he was the worst part of the film. Yeah. Um, there was more interesting characters, and you could have put literally anyone in, in, in the place of him, and it would have made no difference. And you could have put, I don't know, Dustin Diamond in there, and that would have been more realistic. But um, Screech, that would have been brilliant. <laughs> exactly. You could have, He would have made... I mean, Dirty Screech. He could have... <laughs> Had the same impact. You could have put anyone, mm. Sean, Willi- Sean William Scott, any anyone, you, any most ridiculous person that comes to mind. You could put them in that role, and they'd be exactly the same. Mm. I think he just found it in. So for th- this time, even though I, I did like the film, and I, I, I do really enjoy it. 
he's the worst part of it. So, yeah. no, he's not. Utterly fair. Matt, where are you sitting on this one? Completely agree. Clean sweep. Um, I don't think he was anything offensively bad, but it was just um, the cast around him overshadowed him completely. He just um, he didn't do anything to make us care about his transformation into this world that is completely unusual to him. And I think that when he's in that world, then he's not very believable either. And then there's the scene when he's hugging his wife and he's screaming, save me, save me. It was just... <laughs> Yeah, it was shite. I, I didn't I didn't really enjoy it. And it's it's odd actually because that you'd think would be a role he'd absolutely sink his teeth into and, and really take great pleasure out of it and it's all seemed a little half arsed. Mm. That scene in particular was very Amdram, wasn't it? Mm. It's proper mm. like local community theatre, just very yeah, yeah, yeah. the top and just so out of place. Terrible. So I'm quite surprised. Like I so when I said on the last week's on the question cast, I said I thought I knew what Stu was going to say. I've kind of got that right. I thought you might have liked uh, Snake Eyes a little bit more because it it's a little bit off the wall in parts. But Matt, I thought you might have gone the other way around. I thought you might have gone with the enjoying Snake Eyes but not enjoying Eight Millimeter. So yeah, you have surprised me this week, gentlemen. You haven't. <laughs> no, no. It's quite obvious now. Most of the films are terrible. <laughs> right. Was so, your idea. I know, I know. <laughs> the thing is though, like the ones, the terrible ones, like the ones which are like a three or four out of ten, I enjoy those a lot more than these ones which have been a six, because they've just been middle of the road. Yeah. It's like you said, I if a film's so bad it's good, I will watch that any day. If a film's just MOR, I've got no interest in it. It's just no rewatchability for me. So you'd rather watch Velocipasta than this? Any day. <laughs> Plus, Velocipasta's 70 minutes long. <laughs> but I can do that on my lunch break at work. Fucking brilliant. So that's us done for another week. Please remember to leave a review on iTunes. It will help others to discover us. Also, let all your friends and family know if they'd love Nick Cage, if they'd loathe Nick Cage, just Tell them to follow us on the Twitter at CageFightingPod. Email us to CageFightingPod at gmail.com. And we can start having general chit-chats about the man himself. So for this week, Stu, would you like to say goodbye? Dustin Diamond, goodbye. <laughs> Matt, would you like to say goodbye? Take it easy, guys. Stay safe. And it's goodbye from me. And remember, I would hate to see you in one of those everyday situations which calls for a battery-operated vagina <laughs> and you just don't have one. See you next week. <laughs>